morning, New Day. So good to see you guys. Thanks for being here as we continue our current teaching series called Christ the King, where if you're new, is a study just systematically right through uh, the wonderful New Testament book we call Matthew. Our text today is Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. And in these particular verses within Matthew's gospel, Jesus is teaching us about the high cost of discipleship. So that's our theme today, the high cost of discipleship from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. You know, I recently finished a book called Whatever the Cost by David and Jason, Jason Benham. And David and Jason are uh, Christian twins who are former professional baseball players, nationally acclaimed entrepreneurs, and best-selling authors. Their rise to fame came with their first company, which, believe it or not, actually grew to 100 offices across 35 different states. And that just catapulted them onto the national stage. They top charts like Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies, Franchise 500's top newest franchises, Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year finalists, Wall Street Journal's top five real estate agents in America's list, as well as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's top small business of the year. Now, because of their smashing success in real estate, various television networks began recruiting them for a real estate reality TV show. This was when both the Duggars and Duck Dynasty had proved that faith-based and family-based TV could make big money, and the Benham brothers were going to be the next big thing. HGTV was so sure of their success that they offered to not just purchase the pilot episode, which was standard practice in the industry, no, they were going to go ahead and purchase six full episodes right off the bat. And so the Benham brothers went with HGTV over TLC, who was also pursuing them at the time. But listen, when activist groups discovered that the Benham brothers were Christians and were committed to biblical values, they put heavy pressure on the HGTV network to fire them. The executives from HTV, HGTV met uh, over dinner with the brothers and basically said, it's the show or your faith, you have to choose. Now, that's not the words they used, but that's the message that they communicated. Basically, what they shared was this. We don't mind if you hold religious beliefs and convictions, but we will not tolerate you sharing your religious beliefs and convictions. And they basically wanted them to agree to just, you know, take their light and put it under a bushel. But they refused. When the brothers made it clear that they were going to stay true to Christ no matter what, the show was abruptly canceled, even though at this point contracts were already signed and filming had already begun. Well, with the show being canceled, these brothers missed out on countless millions of dollars of revenue. I mean, Duck Dynasty at this point, uh, the family was making $200,000 per episode. So them sticking to their faith cost them no small amount 
of money. But here's what was in the book. This was my absolute most favorite part. I absolutely love it. Here's how the brothers responded when they were let go. They said this, and I quote, if our faith costs us a television show, so be it. So be it. Isn't that refreshing? In a day and age where many people would sell their soul to the devil himself to earn a dollar, these men could not be bought. And in responding the way that they did, uh, they showed a scriptural understanding of the high cost of discipleship. Sadly, in the American Christian church nowadays, the high cost of discipleship is often toned down. It's often understated in an attempt to get people to come on board the Christian faith. But what we're going to see plainly in our text today is that this was not the way of Jesus. Jesus told people plainly and repeatedly that discipleship would cost them something, often something near and dear to their heart. Here was Jesus' message to the people in a nutshell. He told them, I demand total allegiance. You must love me and prioritize me over and above anything and everything else. And if there's anything in your life that you love more than me, that makes you unworthy to be counted as one of my disciples. And it makes you unfit for the kingdom of heaven. Now, when some people heard this pretty radical message, when some people heard this message, they were willing to pay the price. I mean, no matter how high the cost. They were like the person uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, who found a treasure in a field and gladly sold all they had in order to purchase the field as to obtain the treasure buried within it. But for others, when they heard the message... For others, when they were faced with Jesus' demands of discipleship, they turned away because to them, there were other things that were more precious to them than Jesus. Today in our text, Jesus is going to share with us the high cost of discipleship. He's going to tell us how we must love him and prioritize him over and above anything and everything else. And friends, once we've studied this teaching, at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to ask you which camp you find yourself in today. Are you in the camp that says, I'm willing to pay any price in order to follow Jesus? Or like some of the people that we're going to study in our text today, are you in the camp that says, the cost of following Jesus is just too high. So I'm going to choose to walk away. All right, that's an overview of where we're going. And now that I've given you the overview, let's jump right in. Maybe you want to grab your lesson notes today, grab a pen. I'll give you some fill in the blanks as we go so that you have some hooks to hang your thoughts on as we work our way through the passage. If you're taking notes today, first Jesus says this, to be his disciple and to be fit for the kingdom of heaven, we first, we have to prioritize him and love him over and above personal comfort. That's the first thing Jesus says. We have to love him and prioritize him over and above personal comfort. And we see this in verses 19 to 20. Take a look. 
Matthew records, uh, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's begin with the context, okay? Our text today picks up where our text last week left off. If you were here last week, you know that last week Jesus demonstrated his power over disease by healing a leper and a paralytic as well as a woman who had a deadly fever. And Jesus, he's been teaching all day. He's been healing all day. He has a quick dinner at the Apostle Peter's mother-in-law's house, but the crowds after dinner just keep coming to Jesus. And so he keeps teaching them and he keeps healing them. And now it's late into the night. And though Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man. How many of you being fully human get to the end of the day and you're tired? Yeah, I have five kids. That's every day of my life. Jesus was at the end of his physical strength. He just needed to go to sleep. So he begins trying to leave the crowds and make his way to a boat on the shores of the Sea of Galilee so that he can escape the crowds and get some rest. But even in his retreat, even in his attempt to escape the crowds, three people stop him. And the first of the three people to stop him was, Matthew says, a scribe. Now, the scribes were the experts in Jewish law. They were the biblical scholars who taught and copied and interpreted the Jewish law uh, for the Jewish people. And no one knew God's law better than the scribes. Now, when a scribe was out in public, everyone could easily recognize him because he had a robe that had tassels on it. And he also wore a prayer box on his arm uh, called a phylactery. And when the people recognized the scribes and saw them out in public, they revered them. They treated them with great respect. When a scribe would pass by one of the common people, the common people would either rise or bow as a sign of respect. If they were to greet a scribe, they would greet the scribe as follows. They would call them rabbi, which means teacher or even master. Because of their prominence throughout the land of Israel, the scribes were given the place of honor at worship as well as the place of honor at various social affairs. These guys were so revered, they were even honored in death by being buried alongside the tombs of the patriarchs and the prophets of old. If you lived during those times, who here would have wanted to be a scribe, okay? Being treated like that, right? I mean, my goodness. So what I'm trying to paint a picture of is this. I'm trying to paint a picture of their cushy life. They lived a very comfortable life. Well, the scribe in our text, he has heard Jesus' astonishing words, the Sermon on the Mount, and he has witnessed Jesus' astonishing works, the various miracles of healing. And being an expert in the Jewish law, being someone who knew God's law better than anyone else, he immediately recognizes Jesus as the Son of Man, the one Daniel spoke of in Daniel chapter 7, who would one day rule over a kingdom that would have no end. And so this guy has thoughts of grandeur in his mind. He's just imagining King Jesus' fancy palace, his many servants, and the fine foods that would adorn Jesus' table. Probably smoked brisket, right? Yeah, okay, I think so. And he just wants to align himself with Jesus. 
so that his comfortable life can become even more comfortable than it already is. So he just blurts out, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus, knowing what was in this man's heart, challenges his professed commitment. And Jesus tells him plainly, oh, you know how you're loved by the people right now? Well, if you choose to follow me, you're going to be hated by the very same people. That's Matthew 10, 22. Jesus said to him, instead of being called rabbi, this, this greeting and, uh, you know, um, uh, title of respect, instead of being called rabbi or master, guess what they're going to call you if you follow me? They're going to call you Beelzebub, the prince of all demons. Okay, that's an epithet for Satan himself. So do you enjoy being called rabbi? Oh, yes, I do. Would you enjoy being called Satan instead? That's what Jesus was asking him. And Jesus says to him, instead of living in a fine home with fine things, as you're accustomed to doing right now, uh, like me, Jesus was telling him, if you follow me, you're going to have nowhere to lay your head. I mean, as Jesus put it, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, again, that's the title from Daniel 7, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus was saying, well, I am the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I am the one who will rule over a kingdom that has no end. But what you need to understand is this, I'll begin ruling over my kingdom at the time of my second coming. Here and now at the time of my first coming, I will not enjoy the creature comforts that I will enjoy then. Here and now, I won't even have the creature comfort of having somewhere to lay my head each night. And get this, at this point, we hear nothing from the scribe or about the scribe ever again in all of scripture. It's implied that for the scribe, the cost of discipleship was too high a price to pay. He was not willing to forsake creature comforts in order to follow Jesus. Oh, he got wrapped up in the excitement of Jesus's ministry and healing and popularity. He said, I'll follow you wherever you go. But then he was told what it would actually cost him. And he was like, whoa, 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 on second thought comfort is a higher priority to me than Jesus. I love personal comforts more than Jesus. And so he walked away. So the first thing Jesus says, if we're going to follow him as disciples, we need to go ahead and be willing to love him and prioritize him over personal comfort. But that was the very thing the scribe refused to do. Moving on. Secondly, Jesus says, to be my disciple and to be fit to live as a citizen in my kingdom, you not only need to love me and prioritize me over comfort, you must also love me and prioritize me over and above riches. Riches. And we see this in verses 21 to 22. Take a look. Here, here Matthew says, well, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Let me stop there. Luke has a parallel account of this same event. And as Luke tells the story, first, Jesus says to the man, follow me. And the man replies, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
Now picking up in verse 22. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I feel so bad for Jesus. He's exhausted. All he wants to do is get to the boat so he can go to sleep. And yet here's someone else stopping him along the way. Someone referred to here as another of the disciples, uh, which is actually kind of confusing. Do not think that the word disciple here referred to one of the 12 disciples. It, it, it does not. At this stage in Matthew's gospel, before Jesus officially presents the 12, something he does in Matthew chapter 10, the word disciple is to be taken more loosely as anyone who follows along with Jesus and shows some kind of interest in him. So this was someone who was interested in Jesus and likely had been following him around. He had heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount earlier that day. He had witnessed Jesus' demonstration of power over disease by healing the leper and the paralytic and the woman with a deadly fever as well as others. But this was not someone who was saved. As Jesus had with Peter and Andrew, and as he had with James and John, Jesus commands this man, follow me. So he gave the same invitation, the same command to them as he had to those who would become his apostles. But immediately, the man begins making excuses. He says, take a look, he says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this is not what it seems, so let me explain. Let me first bury my father was the equivalent to let me wait until my father dies. This guy wasn't saying that his father had just died and needed to be buried, only that he wanted to wait to follow Jesus until his father was dead. Now, what we need to understand is this. In the Middle East, it was expected that sons would help their father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was distributed. Since a man's inheritance was customarily lost or reduced if he didn't fulfill his expected responsibilities to the family, the phrase, I must bury my father, was frequently equivalent to, I want to wait until I receive my inheritance. So bottom line, this guy didn't want to risk losing out on his inheritance, which implies that his father was a person of means. How many people are concerned about losing their inheritance if their parents are broke? So the fact that he was concerned indicates that his father may have been a person of, of wealth, a person of means. So this guy, long story short, prioritizes riches over Jesus. He prioritized riches over Jesus. Now, let's compare his response to Jesus uh, with the response of the apostles. When James and John were called by Jesus, here's what we read in Luke chapter 5, verse 11. They left everything and followed him. Now, friends, let's remember they worked with their father in the family fishing business. So, so they risked losing everything as well but they loved Jesus more than they loved riches. And so they walked away, and they left it all behind. Likewise, remember Matthew, the tax collector? 
when Jesus commanded him, follow me, here's what we read. Luke chapter 5, verse 28, leaving everything, Matthew rose and followed Jesus. Now, collecting taxes in first century Palestine was an incredibly lucrative career path to follow. All right, they were dishonest as the day is long, but they were richer than God. But Matthew loved Jesus more than riches. And so when Jesus said, follow me, he left it behind and he followed Jesus. You see, when faced with the choice, some do choose Jesus over riches, but the man in our text did not. He chose riches over Jesus. He was like the rich young fool from Matthew chapter 19. Remember him? Jesus said to the rich young fool, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad. Why? Let's read it out loud. Because he had great wealth. This is exactly what happened with the second guy in our text. He loved riches more than Jesus. So like the scribe, he too walked away. So, so secondly, friends, Jesus demands that if we are to follow him in discipleship, we must love him over and above riches. But that's the very thing the second person in our text did not do. Thirdly, and finally, Jesus says, to be my disciple and to be fit to live in the kingdom of heaven forever, he says, you must not only love and prioritize me over comfort and riches, but also even over and above your own family. We see this one, not in Matthew's gospel, but in the parallel account of this same event found in Luke's gospel. We read Luke chapter 9. Yet another said to Jesus, so poor Jesus, he's just trying to get to the boat so he can go to sleep. But yet another, as he was heading towards the boat, said to him, I'll follow you, Lord. But on second thought, let me first go and say farewell to those at my home. So Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this third man, like the scribe, claimed a strong commitment to Christ. I will follow you wherever you go. But no sooner had he said it, then he began to realize and think about and contemplate the implications of what he said. And so he's like, oh, no, I mean, um, I, oh, no, I will, I will, I, I definitely will. I meant what I said, but can, can, I just, can I just go home just real quick? I just want to go say goodbye to my family. That's it. Let me just go home. And Jesus basically is like, no, follow me now. Because Jesus knew that his Ties to his family were so strong that if he went home, I mean, going home to say goodbye to your family appears to be a reasonable request, but if you've made an idol out of your family, Jesus says no, because he knows that the guy's going to go home, his mom's going to begin crying, his little sister's going to grab him by the ankle and say, please don't go, don't leave us. And then family pressure is going to cause him to lose kind of the impetus of the moment and the impulse of the moment. And the guy was never going to cut ties with his family and follow Jesus in discipleship. Like many people, fear of being away from or ostracized by his family, this would keep this man from following the Lord. 
And it's because of situations like this that Jesus cautioned those who followed him. Telling the people, hey, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, friends, when you see the word hate, don't understand it the way a 21st century American would understand it. Pretend that you are Matthew's original audience, a Jew living in Palestine in the first century. To such a Jew living at such a time, the word hate simply meant to prefer one thing over another. If you hated this and loved that, it just meant that you preferred this over that. For example, God said in Malachi chapter 1, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Friends, this just means that God chose Messiah to come through the line of Jacob versus the line of Esau. And in this way, God preferred Jacob over Esau. Now, just as God preferred Jacob over Esau, so Jacob preferred his wife Rachel over his other wife Leah. We read in Genesis 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now listen, Jacob had a bunch of kids through Leah, so don't think he hated her in the way that you and I understand hate today. He didn't. All that is meant here is that he preferred Rachel over Leah. So with this understanding, to hate one's family is to prefer God over them by disregarding what they want if it comes into conflict with what God requires. To hate one's family, as harsh as that sounds, it just simply means to love God more and to love your family less. And please understand, Jesus doesn't say, don't love your family. He absolutely says you should love your family. He just says, but you should always love me even more. But this was the very thing this man was unwilling to do. To anyone who would prioritize allegiance to family over allegiance to Jesus, Jesus says this in Matthew 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, friends, all other loves have to be subordinate to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this third person who approached Jesus didn't love him above all else. So Jesus said this to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now, how many of you are farmers? I love farmers, but how many of you are farmers? Okay, I don't see any hands up. And it was the same in first service and second service and now here in third. All right. Since we're not farmers, this doesn't quite hit us the same way it would have hit them. So let me explain. Back in the day, people had farms and you had your oxen and you had your plow. And the oxen would help you pull your plow. And you would look straight ahead because you wanted to make straight furrows in the ground that you would then plant your seeds in. And if you made nice straight lines, you could maximize your yield of whatever crop you were planting. But someone who wasn't paying attention, someone with divided interest, someone who would plow and then go, oh, look, it's a bird, you know, and then just, they'd just be all over the place. And so Jesus here is condemning uh, divided interest. 
And he says, hey, if you put your hand to the plow, but then look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, you cannot have divided interest. You cannot love your family over and above Jesus. You have to have total 100% allegiance to Christ. And if you don't, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You're not fit for the kingdom. And that was the case for this third person who approached Jesus as he was trying to escape the crowds and get into the boat to take a much-needed nap. All right, we've said a lot, so let me recap and try to bring it all together for you before we close in prayer. Jesus had just shared astounding words, the Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus had performed astounding works, the miracles of healing as he demonstrated his power over disease. And tens of thousands of people had heard his sermon and seen his miracles and as a result were following him wherever he went. But for many, including the three people that we've studied today, they weren't genuine followers of Jesus, as evidenced by their unwillingness to forsake all for Jesus. Though they looked favorably on Jesus and were excited about his ministry, when they made their shallow professions of faith, Jesus did not accept such professions as genuine. You see, Jesus didn't judge who was worthy to be his disciple and who was fit for the kingdom of heaven by what kind of profession they made, rather by their willingness to forsake all to follow him in discipleship. Jesus demanded total allegiance. If Jesus asked someone to forsake creature comforts and they weren't willing to do it, if they refused that, then he refused them as disciples. If Jesus asked someone to sacrifice riches and they refused to do it, he refused them as disciples. If Jesus asked someone to prioritize him over and above their family and they refused to do it, he refused them as disciples. Again, and here's like 18 fill-in-the-blank notes for those of you note-takers. Here, here, here it is again. Jesus' message was this. I demand total allegiance. You must love me and prioritize me over and above anyone and anything else. And if there's anything in your life that's more important to you than me, you are not worthy to be my disciple, nor are you fit for the kingdom of heaven. And friends, my assignment today is to share with you the news that nothing whatsoever has changed. Like in God's economy, it works the same way today as it did back then. Jesus had a high cost of discipleship back then. He has a high cost of discipleship today. There was a price to follow Jesus back then. There's a price to follow Jesus today. Here we are sitting in a church. Here some of you are tuned in online. So, so you, you know, you're a part of the fold. You're a part of the flock. I'm a follower of Jesus. I confess Jesus as my Savior. And like the sobering truth that we're studying today is this, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven because Jesus does not go by what kind of profession we make. He goes by whether or not we have total commitment and allegiance in our heart to him. Oh, we're saved by faith, but it's the kind of faith 
that loves Jesus and prioritizes him over and above everything else. And though we're all here at church, whether physically or virtually or digitally, not everyone who attends church is saved. Because some call him Lord, but they haven't made that inner heart commitment of total allegiance to Christ, where he's more important than anything and anyone else. And friends, this harkens back to stuff we've covered in previous weeks. Remember how Jesus on Judgment Day will command the angels to separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the weeds, the wheat from the chaff? These are all references to the angels sorting out those who claim to follow Jesus. The angels are going to separate those who truly do and those who claim to but really don't. And friends, the difference maker is who has total allegiance in their heart to Christ. Now, please understand today, Jesus may or may not ask us to give up creature comforts to follow him. But if he does, we have to be willing. Jesus may or may not ask us to give up riches to follow him, but if he does, we must be willing. And in becoming a disciple of Jesus, you may or may not have a falling out with your family. I mean, they might accept your decision and they might decide to get saved themselves. But if they don't, if they disapprove and it came down to you having a relationship with them or a relationship with Jesus, Jesus expects undivided loyalty to him. I pray that you never have to face such a decision, but if you do, you must choose Jesus to be worthy of being counted as one of his disciples and to be fit to live as a citizen in his kingdom that has no end. So one last time, church, Jesus demands total allegiance. We must prioritize him and love him over and above anything and anyone else. And if there's anything in our life that's more important to us than him, he tells us that we are not worthy to be his disciples and aren't fit for the kingdom of heaven. So church, let's just make sure today that we don't only confess and profess Christ. Let's make sure we have an inner heart commitment of total allegiance to him. Friends, God the Father has appointed Jesus to rule over an eternal kingdom in the new heavens and in the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth, that's what we call heaven. And Jesus wants each and every one of us to be there living as a citizen under his righteous rule. But make no mistake about it, there is a price to pay. We must demonstrate to Jesus saving faith, the kind of faith that loves him and prioritizes him over and above everything else. So we got to count the cost. Have you? Are you willing to forsake all for Jesus if he asked you to? Will you gladly prioritize him and love him over and above comfort and riches and family and anything and everything else? If so, good news. Jesus will gladly receive you as his disciple and count you fit to live forever as a citizen in his eternal kingdom. So friends, it's time to choose. Remember I told you straightforward right at the beginning, at the end, I'm going to ask you to choose and, and just sort of like evaluate which camp do I find myself in 
right now. Well, we're at that part of the sermon. So which camp are you in? Are you in the camp that's willing to pay any price? Do you see Jesus as that great treasure buried in a field? And are you willing to pay any price to obtain the field as to obtain the treasure buried within the field? Are you in that camp of those who are willing to pay any price? Are you willing to prioritize Jesus over riches? Because you remember the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world yet lose his soul? Are you in the camp that says, what would I not pay to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior? What would I not pay to inherit eternal life? What would I not pay to have my sins forgiven? Or are you in the camp that says, ah, the price of following Jesus, it's just too high. So you know what? I think I'm just going to walk away. Where are you at today? Church, I've done my job to faithfully teach you the word of God. I've done my job to to give you the message contained in this text. And it's Jesus saying, you want to be worthy to be my disciple? You want to be fit to live in my kingdom forever? Then I demand total allegiance. So friends, I've discharged my duty, but now you have a duty before God. And it's to go ahead and identify, which camp are you in? Which camp are you in? I want to close in prayer. So I'm going to ask everyone online, out in the foyer, here in person, would you you bow your head? Would you join me in prayer? Would you just get in a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like for you? (laughs) Stare up at the ceiling, close your eyes, bow your head, whatever whatever gets you in that frame of mind where where you can commune with God. Get Get in that posture and just say this to God in your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to this earth to take the punishment for my sin upon himself. Thank you that because of Jesus, I can escape the just punishment of sin, which is death. I understand today full well the cost of following Jesus. I understand that I got to love him and prioritize him above everything else. And knowing that full well, today I choose to follow Jesus. God, I know that he might ask me to forsake comfort, and if so, I am willing. God, I know that he might ask me to forsake riches, and if so, I am willing. God, I know that he might ask me to forsake family, and if so, I'm willing to do even that. God, I'm choosing today to not let any of these common barriers of discipleship, comfort, riches, family, come between me and Jesus. For as the Apostle Peter once said, who else has the words that give eternal life? How could I choose anything other than Jesus? Only he has the words of eternal life. So God, today, I humbly ask that upon my confession of faith and upon my inner heart commitment of total allegiance to Jesus, I ask, God, that you would grant to me eternal life. God, forgive my sins. Grant to me eternal life. I want to live as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. God, this is a gift I do not deserve. It is a gift I have not earned. It's been purchased for me by Jesus. And for this gift, I'm eternally grateful. God, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. 
We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.